0: Good morning everyone. I want to welcome you to our service. If you have your Bible, if you'll turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, if you're visiting with us or you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand. We have plenty of extra Bibles and we'd love to give you a Bible. Before we begin this morning, just two things to mention. First of all, I want to thank all of you who contributed to uh, the Baby Bottles for Choice One. For those of you visiting, we, we help uh, support Choice One Pregnancy Center, not just with uh, baby bottles full of change, but also we volunteer. We have a number of different things. If you're interested in finding out more about that, you can let one of us know. We hosted their fashion show recently, and we're thankful for ministries like Choice One that are offering the, the choice of life for little ones who have no choice. All right, this morning we're in Mark chapter four, and we're studying through the gospel of Mark and learning that in Mark the real message of Mark is clarifying who Jesus is. The first eight chapters of Mark, we see this unfolding suspense where people just don't get it, right? Even his closest followers are going, who is this guy? Meanwhile, the demons are going, we know who you are. You're the son of God. The heavenly father from heaven says, I know who you are. This is my beloved son. But the disciples don't. And so at this point, they're still trying to clarify who Jesus is. But in the midst of that, they're committing to the journey. Now, Mark, unlike the other gospel authors, isn't as concerned with the teaching of Jesus as much as he is in the actions of Jesus. So Mark doesn't have a lot of red letters. You know, the red letter editions have the words of Jesus. So Matthew has chapter after chapter, sermon on the mount, things like that. Mark only has two chapters where he really gives a message of the teaching of Jesus. But remember, they all were familiar with most of the same stuff. They chose to, to place these teachings where they wanted to to indicate significant points. And so what Mark's going to introduce us to is one of Jesus' most famous parables. So if you look in verse 1, it says, He began to teach them again by the seashore, and a very great multitude gathered before him so that he got into a boat in the sea and he sat down and all the multitude were by the seashore on the land and he was teaching them many things in parables. Now it's interesting if you've ever had a chance to learn about the Holy Land, there's actually a place in the Holy Land on the Sea of Galilee called the Bay of Parables. And it's because, I guess audiologists or whoever studies sound, they tested this place where Uh, it's kind of like a natural amphitheater and someone could speak down by the beach and thousands of people could hear them. And so Jesus is probably addressing a huge crowd of thousands of people, but it says he taught them many things in parables. Now this was Jesus' most regular way of teaching. It says he taught them many things. Now what's ironic and interesting about parables is the word parable literally means to, to throw something alongside, but But the idea is to take something that's not understood and put something alongside of it to clarify it okay so much of what jesus was teaching about is about an invisible unseen world about god and his kingdom about demons and angels about who jesus is and so much of it is hard to grasp and so jesus would throw down these parables so they could begin to understand these unseen realities in fact it's kind of illustrated when he told Nicodemus, you need to be born again, and Nicodemus is like, what? And Jesus is like, look, if I'm telling you earthly things and you don't even understand them, how will you understand if I tell you heavenly things? So the primary subject of Jesus' parables by far are parables about the kingdom of God. Frequently when he wanted to teach him about the kingdom of God, he would throw down a parable. Now, one of the other interesting things about parables is they're two-edged swords. Parables are designed to reveal truth like a window. They're, they're to open up a new world, but they also have a flap on the other side to conceal truth. So in fact, Jesus is going to say in this, par- in this passage, I'm using parables because I want to reveal to you, but I want to conceal from them. And you're like, wait, what? So there's a double edge here, and we're going to talk about how that is. But this parable is a parable from agriculture. Jesus' probably most famous form of parables frequently talked about vines and plants and seeds and so forth. And so, some of you are familiar with this, but in studying it this this week, I really saw something that I've never seen before, and I think it'll be very helpful. But look at verse two, it says, he was teaching them many things in parables, and he was saying to them in his teaching, listen, I don't miss that, because that's a commandment, okay? Ten times in Mark, Jesus says, listen. And it's kind of like if you've ever listened to Charles Stanley. He'll frequently say, now you listen. Now on the one hand, that's kind of dumb because you're like, you don't need to say that because the people who aren't listening aren't going to hear it, and the people that are, you don't need to tell them because they're listening. But it's it's a technique that says, what I'm about to say is really important. So sometimes Jesus would say this, truly, truly, I say to you, Now, am I to begin to wonder if the other things he said aren't true? Like, is this true and that's not? No, it's just a way of saying, listen. And scholars have suggested that maybe Jesus used this frequently, listen, because it would be the equivalent of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, 4. The the Hebrew commandment to listen is Shema, Shema Israel. And so Jewish people still recite that every Sabbath, Shema Israel, hear, listen, so Jesus goes, listen, okay, what is it you want us to hear, now picture, these disciples do not yet fully understand that Jesus is the divine son of God, they're still not sure what they're getting into here, they are following him, but their faith and understanding is very minimal, so at its bare minimum, these guys are clueless, like what's your point here? So Jesus says, listen, a sower went out to sow. Now, we usually don't use that word. We usually use a farmer. But think about farming back then, okay? These people were not idiots. First century people understood farming in pretty profound ways. But one of its most basic things is you find a plot of land that the soil appears to be decent. It's getting some rain and so forth. And the first thing you do is, is you turn the soil over. You get the rocks out. You cultivate it now. We have great machinery that does this. Does this? Yeah, I can't speak very well today. That does this. Those get those mixed up sometimes. Does and does. Um, but anyway, so in, even then, they knew that you didn't just start th- sowing seeds. And as as most of you know, seeds aren't cheap, right? So those of you who have decided to go buy a bag of seed, yeah, you get what you pay for. You could get Mo and Larry's crabgrass seed for nothing, but to get good seed, it's expensive, and so if you've ever sowed seed, I saw a guy the other day with one of those hand sowers, you know, spinning it like this, but most of us put it in our little scotch thing, and we just kind of turn it on. Okay, do I put it on number four? You don't want to waste this stuff. You don't want a bunch of it gone up on your driveway, because it's expensive, but this guy, this farmer seems to be a little bit like, what's, yo, pal, what's you're, you're wasting a lot of seed here. You didn't prepare the soil and you're just throwing it indiscriminately. So let's take a look here. He says, verse four, it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. Like, wow, this guy has bad aim. It's going, it's going on the, like, no, don't get it over there. Just get it in the good stuff. And the birds came and ate it up. Well, well, that's not good. The other seed fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. Now, interestingly, that can be kind of tricky because rocky ground can sometimes mean you can't see the rocks at first because there's maybe a couple inches of soil. I moved some dirt recently to plant some grass and um, I thought I had done a great job until it rained and then it washed off some of the topsoil. And I was like, man, this is full of rocks. But in this case, it's probably a couple inches of topsoil but underneath is bedrock, so ironically, It got off to a good start. Immediately, it sprang up because it didn't have any deep soil. But after the sun rose, it was scorched. Because it had no root, it withered away. So it starts up. The the, the plant's going this way. The roots are going that way. And then the heat comes. Boop. You're like, okay. Verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns. And again, you're going farmer come here i need to talk to you you don't plant seed among thorns like what were you thinking you pull the thorns up and you and then you got to keep weeding you can't let the no he throws it right in the thorns and it says the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no crop you're like dang this guy's not going to be doing well this year it's going to be a tough year i hope he has a backup plan like i hope he can hunt cuz he's not going to live off the land this year but yet Jesus says, other seeds, and here he changes from the singular, seeds, seeds, to seeds, plural. It fell into the good soil. And you're going, what good soil? It sounds like this guy, somebody sold him a bridge, you know, that's, that's got uh, terrible soil. But yet, there's this powerful bumper crop. Look, it says, these, these seeds that fell in the good soil grew up and increased. They were yielding a crop and were producing 30, 60. A hundredfold. Hey, I'll take those odds. A hundredfold. I'm in on that. When Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson, the odds were 42 to 1. Nobody bid on Buster Douglas that day in Japan because it's not going to happen. Nobody's thinking here that this guy is going to have a tremendous bumper crop, a hundredfold from what looked like a really tough start with a dumb farmer. Now, at that point, everybody's like, hmm, and your point here? And Jesus doesn't give a point. That's it. It's kind of like watching Napoleon Dynamite. If you've ever seen it, right? Some of you won't admit it, but you keep thinking there's a point, right? Rico's going to do something and turn this thing. No, it's pointless. That's what's I'm kind of clever about it, as dumb as it is. It's like, it keeps you all the way to the end, and then you start going, wait, I just got had here. There's no point. So notice what happens here in this parable. It says in verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him the parables. See, now there's something to think about. Many people just were like, hey, hon, I met that guy Jesus today. He's pretty good at healing, but he's weird. He tells weird stories about farm. Don't make no sense. Right? Meanwhile, some people are like these. No, man, don't leave me hanging. You, you, come on, give me some more. I don't, what are you talking about? That, what's your point? See, see, what I want to want to plan in your mind to think about pardon the pardon. is just kind of, wow, some people are really interested. Like, I, I want to get this stuff. I, I I there's something I'm missing here, but I'm gonna talk to Jesus about it. Lord if this is the truth, you know, what are you trying to teach me? So they, they ask him, and Jesus says to them, to you has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parable." So we'll come back to that in a moment, but for now, they're like, Jesus, can you explain this? He goes, okay. Verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse 14, the sower sows the word, ding, 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 the first thing He says is, make sure you understand that the seed is the word of God. And I think by deduction we could go, well, then it must make Jesus the the farmer, right? Because he's the one that's proclaiming the message. Now, don't don't lose that. The seed is the word of God. And then he says, and these are the ones beside the road where the word is sown. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word of God which has been sown in them. Now this is so graphic. I picture this so, so plainly, and especially because anybody who teaches the Bible understands that there's such a, a, a one-to-one parallel here that every time I'm speaking, right, I'm casting the seeds of the Word of God. But I know, I know because the Bible tells me this, that many people who hear it, they won't even be out the door, and it's gone gone it made no difference in their life and the scariest part of that is that's satanic people like man the word satanic that that's satanic satan's chief goal is to keep you from understanding and being interested in scripture you can go to church till the cows come home we don't care about that But when you start listening to the Bible, believing it and applying it, now he's mad. And so the Bible tells us that he, like a bird, will try to snatch that out of your heart and mind. And so you will give no further thought to it. And the scariest part about that is many people think that, man, hey, listen, I went to church. I heard the Bible. Me and God are like this. And James says, if you hear the word of God and you don't do anything about it, you are deceived. So that's why I pray, I say, God, let your word change lives. Because frankly, it doesn't matter how many bottoms sit on chairs and how many people open up their Bible, but only that seed which bears fruit into life. And so maybe you or someone you know you've experienced this, you're like, I feel like I'm talking to a wall. They, I tell them what the Bible says and it's like, we didn't even have this conversation. But then the second one's just as scary. In a similar way, Jesus says in verse 16, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. They don't walk away going, huh, whatever. They go, yes! wow, count me in, where's the baptism, hallelujah, but then they start realizing, wait, what did I sign up for here, look at the verse 17, they have no firm root in themselves, but they're only temporary, and then when affliction, you know, hard times because you're a Christian, or persecution, my family doesn't like it. My husband's mad, my wife's my kids, my grandma, my boss. Immediately they fall away. When I was a new Christian, 17 years old, I was so excited. I was scaring people. They'd run from me, literally. They'd say, This, you're they tell me that later. I thought you were crazy. Some of them got converted and came back and said, I thought you were crazy, but thank you for witnessing to me. But I remember one guy in particular. Um, I had, I had witnessed to this one guy, like a madman, I, I, I I flashed my high beams to, to flag him down, and got in his car, I said, hey, he's a buddy of mine from high school, got to tell you about Jesus, but he got saved, right, but then we had this other guy, he had a sleepover at my house, hey, let's invite him over, he's another friend, we're telling about Jesus, he's like, yes, praise God, yes, he was so excited, never saw anything like it, The next day, he comes to church with us. We had a little guest book, a little tiny church in Deptford, New Jersey. He signs in the guest book, praise God, I was saved by the power of God, right? That day, he goes, Tom, we gotta go out and tell people. We're out street witnessing and preaching the first day of his conversion. Within a week or two, I call him up. I say, hey man, you coming to church? No, I'm not coming anymore. Wait, why? You received the word with joy. Why? Now, I don't, this is crazy. My bus driver hates me. My girlfriend broke up with me. The Bible you gave me, I put it under my bed, and when I woke up, it was gone. That was it. Never turned back. Years later, somebody sent me an article about him. He was tried and found guilty for murdering a little old lady in my hometown, right? Wow. A guy who's gone, praise God, I was saved by the power of God, is now in prison for murder. Jesus said this will happen. Then the next, so, so we're going to assume here that whatever happened to these first two people, they weren't truly followers of Christ. They weren't forgiven. They're not going to be in heaven. The third group though, and this probably might pertain to some of us here, think carefully about this. Is this person a believer? Are this group of people going to heaven? It says, others are the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns who heard the word. Now, we don't really know what their decision was, but it says the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now, I want to talk about that word unfruitful. In the Bible, unfruitful is not good. You don't want to be unfruitful. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. And so there would be some who would argue here, these people were never true Christians. They're not fruitful. On the other hand, I would suggest that it's possible to be a Christian, but to become unfruitful. And there's two passages that seem to allude to that. But it should be scary if you're unfruitful because then you're going to have to go, if I got no fruit, I better take a look at my root. But Paul told Titus, Titus ministered in Crete. These people were mean, nasty, selfish people. He said, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You're like, wow, that sounds like my neighborhood. He said, remind these Christians, urge them to engage in good deeds so that they don't become unfruitful right so so he's talking to believers so i think it's possible for a believer to become pretty lean not much fruit even more scary in second peter chapter one Shizu preached a beautiful um explanation at our men's conference but in second peter one it says now that you have this precious faith in jesus add to your faith and he lists some fruitful virtues. He said, if you're really a Christian, begin to add moral excellence, right? Don't don't keep being immoral and deceitful and lying. He said, add to your faith godliness, knowledge. He says, add to your faith knowledge. Start reading the word and growing. He said, add to your faith perseverance. Like, don't quit just because something didn't go well in your life. Keep following. He said, add to your faith brotherly love. But then he says this, if these qualities are yours, you are not unfruitful. That's a good thing. You're a fruitful Christian. But then he says, but if you lack these qualities and you're going, no, I don't have many. He says, one of two things is true. Either you're blind and short-sighted, you have forgotten about your cleansing and forgiveness from sin. So it's possible for a Christian to really lose their way, right? To really mess up for a time. But if you're a true Christian, those roots are still there. And you're gonna turn the corner. But then he said, if you lack these qualities, you better make your calling and election sure. Like stop and think to yourself, why do I call myself a Christian if there's no evidence? So I'm gonna suggest here that this is what Satan does in America. You see, in other cultures, he uses persecution severely. Right now, thousands of people are in jail Thousands of people die for Christ, right? But not in America. But instead in America, the Bible teaches Satan has many schemes. If he can't get us through persecution to fall away, he comes in the other door of pleasure. He says, easy there, tiger. I know you're a Christian, but it's important that you make money here, sport. The desire for riches, the desire for other things. Well, pastor, it's not like I'm out there smoking weed and cheating on my wife. Well, no, but what are you doing with your time? Well, I mean, I got this and this and this. There's nothing wrong. Come on, I'm on Facebook. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, in and of itself, what Satan is doing with most American Christians is he's choking them this way. Just have fun. You know, don't take your relationship with Christ super serious. Don't say, hell or high water, I'm serving the Lord. You know, you've got a lot of things to do here. A lot of hobbies, vacations, you know, building up, surplus, retirement, all the good things, the American dream. And yet, Jesus says, they become unfruitful. They're not sharing their faith. They're not spending time in prayer. They're not crucifying the flesh. They're not raising their family for Christ. They're not regularly committed to church and serving Christ. It's kind of like, yeah, it's just part of my hobbies. You know, Jesus, he's in peace, right? No. Finally, Jesus says, but then there's one other group, the ones on whom the seed was sown on good ground. Now, I used to think that the primary point of this whole parable was, check your heart there clear the clods out of your heart. I think it's bigger than that. But it doesn't go without mentioning that. He does say, the good soul hears the word and accepts it. And what I mean by accepting it is, they're not just going, I accept that proposition. The devil accepts the Bible. The Bible says, he knows there's a, a Lord Jesus and he trembles. He accepts that propositional truth. But to accept The word of God is not only to believe it, to trust in it, but it's to obey it, to get on the gospel highway and to commit to following Jesus, though no one join me. And so Jesus tells us here that those who are truly changed begin to bring forth fruit. It's a miracle of God, 30, 60, 100 fold. But I want to suggest that the key to this parable is not the soil of our heart, but it's actually found in verses 10 through 12. And so let's look at Jesus' explanation of this parable. As soon as he was alone with his followers and the 12, and they're asking him, he said to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now that, that's profound here. Let's start with the word mystery. If something's a mystery, that means it's hidden. It means most people don't get it. Most people don't see it. It's veiled. But Jesus says, to you has been given the mystery. And what he means by that is, I am granting you a revelation. I am allowing you to understand things that others don't. It's a privilege. It doesn't say, to those of you who are so smart and such good inquirers, based on your intellectual capacities, I have confidence that you will be able to grasp these things. He's gone, nope, I'm giving this to you by my grace. I am revealing, now don't miss this, I am revealing to you who I really am. And when he says here the mystery of the kingdom, at its most basic core is an understanding of the mystery of the kingdom, is to understand the mystery of the king. You see, ultimately, the great mystery is the identification of who Jesus Christ truly is. He's not just a good fella, one among many, up there with Confucius and Plato. He's the living God, the Lord of all, the God-man who became flesh, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And what we learn here is that the only way I come to clarify who Jesus is, is if it's given to me. And that's both humbling, but I hope you'll find it heartening. I hope that you will be encouraged, if you know Jesus today, that that is a divine work of God's grace and mercy, extending to you a special set of Holy Ghost glasses, whereby the foolishness of the gospel isn't foolishness anymore, but rather the message of Christ and his cross is precious and powerful. But while it's been given to us as a gift of his divine sovereignty, it has been revealed to us, it's painful and mysterious to understand that it's also concealed from others. Now, this is a very difficult passage. Jesus says in verse 11, but those who are on the outside, they're getting it in parables in order while seeing they may not perceive. You're like, wait a minute. Jesus, what are you saying here? Why wouldn't you want them to get it? Why would you hide it from them? And then it gets even more painful because he says, so that they don't get it lest they hear, understand, return, and then they're forgiven. And you're going, wait a minute. That's not the Jesus I know. He wants everybody to be forgiven. He loves everybody. Why would he not want people to be forgiven? Why would he conceal it from anybody? And you go, Mark, can you, can you ease this tension? And the answer is no, there's a tension here in the Bible. And the tension is as follows. No one deserves to go to heaven. All of us are dead in our sin. All of us are blind. All of us are lost. None of us has the capacity to figure this out. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. All have turned aside. All of us have been blinded by Satan. But God in his sovereign mercy has chosen to reveal himself to some people. He's opened their eyes. He's caused the light of the gospel to shine in their hearts. And they come to life. And thereby we recognize that I'm not saved because I figured it out. I'm not saved because I had right thinking. I'm saved by divine revelation. God in his grace saw that I was blind, but now I see. And so it, I recognize that it's by his doing that I'm a Christian, so that I have nothing to boast about. And I give him all the glory and praise that Jesus Christ, I know him like, like elf knows Santa. I know him in a personal relationship, but nothing by my doing. Now, herein lies the, the, the prong of tension. Well, what about those who don't know him? Jesus, that's not fair. Let me be very clear on this. The Bible says in no uncertain terms, anyone who goes to hell, it is 100% their fault. No one is going to hell because you wanted to be a Christian but Jesus didn't let you. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Whosoever will may come. If you don't come to Jesus, you'll die in your sins. Men are judged for their deeds that are written in the books. So somehow the Bible teaches this, that people should be prayed for, pleaded with, begged to come to Jesus, and if they don't, they're going to go to hell, and the Bible says it's, they're without excuse. But somehow in this mystery, and no, it can't be completely figured out, God says, if you've come to me, it's because to you it has been given. I called you by my grace. And don't let that confuse you, but let it comfort you. If you want to come to Jesus, don't think, I want to come, but he doesn't want me to come. If you want to come, it's because he wants you to come. And if you don't come, it's your fault. But here's what I think Jesus is ultimately teaching through this parable. And that's this. That a revelation of the person of Jesus, when I truly get who he is, leads to powerful change in the life of his followers in case you didn't get it i'm going to say it again a revelation of the person of jesus leads to powerful change in the life of his followers so let me start by talking briefly about a revelation of the person of jesus the way that people come to know jesus there's only one way there's no other way it's through the word no one ever comes to jesus apart from the word you're not going to come to jesus in a dream you're not going to come to jesus Uh, through somebody laying hands on you. You come to Jesus through the Word. The Bible says we're born again by the seed of the Word. Now, God may use all kinds of other things to get you awake, to get you reading this book, or He'll bring back to your mind the Word from your childhood, but God uses His Word to reveal Jesus. And it's a work of His Spirit. And so we can pray. If you know Jesus... Hallelujah. I am so grateful that John says, the whole world lies in the power of Satan, but the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we might know him. I am so grateful to know Jesus. He's not just a guy hanging on a tree. But Jesus is on to say this, that those who truly know him are going to bring forth fruit. Why? Not because we got better soil, it's because a true revelation into the person of Jesus leads to powerful change in the life of his followers. And I want to suggest several ways that it's powerful. First of all, it's life-giving. Seeds are pretty cool, right? You stick them in the ground, I can't see what's going on under there. But all of a sudden, bam, something comes out of the ground. It's alive. And that's, I love that. I love that people can hear the word of God and they come alive. I laugh when people go, I went to the Holy Land, Brother Alan, and the Bible has come alive to me. And I go, nope. Bible's always been alive. It's alive and powerful. You came alive. And so when people are awakened, it's nothing less than a miracle of new life. If you're a born-again Christian, think of this powerful change. Somebody sowed the seed, God opened your eyes and boom, you were made alive when you were dead in your sins by the word of God. Peter said, you have been born again, not of imperishable seed, but of imperishable seed of the word of God that endures forever. So it's life-giving. Secondly, it's lasting. Those who truly know who Jesus is, come hell or high water, they're not going to fall away from persecution. They're not going to... Peter out because of pleasure. They're going all the way. And it's not because of any wonderful thing we do. It's because all of his own, he keeps them. He prays for them. He perseveres in them, with them, through them, so that everyone, God, begins a good work in us. He will complete it until the day of Christ. Take comfort in that. But at the same time, take heed to that. If you feel as though you're this beaten down wondering if you're really even alive don't let that last root die out flee to jesus and say lord bring me out of my deadness and my barrenness for i truly want to follow you to the end what a blessing to know that jesus is bringing forth powerful change in the lives of people that's that's life-giving that's lasting third it's lush it leads to fruit Now, this is important to understand. What does the Bible mean when it talks about fruit? Three things. Number one, fruit starts with character change. I don't even want to hear about your conversion if you're the same wicked person two years later, right? The Bible says that when we become Christians, our flesh is crucified. We're not in the flesh but in the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit begins to change us. The fruit of the Spirit is love. If you hate everybody... The Bible says, how can the love of God dwell in you if you hate everybody? Joy. Doesn't mean you're, ho, ho, everything's great, but you have this settled sense that it's well with your soul. Peace. Not every moment. We all freak out at times, but the fruit of the Spirit is producing peace in us. Gentleness. Kindness. You're not flying off the handle. Self-control. I get up and go to work. Everybody wants to see a miracle. Ooh, heal somebody. I'll show you a miracle. Take a lazy kid who's good for nothing, and the Lord gets in his life, and now he works. Take an angry drunk who now is caring for his kids. Take a wayward mom whose heart turns back to her husband. This is powerful character that's only produced by the fruit of the Spirit. Help yourself. Try making fruit. Let see how that goes. Fruit's a miracle. Thank you, Jesus, that in our lives you're producing the fruit of character change. Secondly, fruit is conduct. It'll show up in your works. Paul told Titus, remind these Christians to engage in good works so that they don't become unfruitful. I get paid to be good. Don't be good for nothing. It's a pun there. It was bad. It's really bad. But there's a point behind that. There are many people who call themselves Christians. They don't do anything. There's no such thing in the Bible. Jesus said, let men see your good works. The Bible says Jesus died for us and we might be zealous of good deeds, helping people, talking about Christ to others. Instead of telling your neighbor, hey, we prayed for you, maybe going over and saying, the neighbor's going, I'd rather you bring me some Gatorade and soup, right? Do something, get involved in your church. Paul said in Colossians 1, I pray that you will bear fruit in good works. Just actively eager to go out there and that's what Christians do. It's not because we're wonderful people. The Lord has changed us. Freely we receive, freely we give. Surely there's somebody that God has in your sphere that you you can do good in their lives. And I thank God for so many. I look around and see so many of you doing good for Christ. What a joy. And then it also is Converts. Jesus said, I chose you to go and bear fruit and your fruit shall remain. And you're like, yeah, well, here's the thing, Pastor Tom, you just walk by someone and they get saved. I'm not like that. Listen, it, all of us can be used by God to bring people to Christ. Do you think I think for a moment when I give invitations and someone gets saved that I'm going, well, to, yeah, well, I'm glad I saved them. Right? Most of the people that come here and get saved is because you brought them. 80% of people who come to Christ is through friends and family members. You prayed for them. You labored over them. You put up with them. You served them when it was inconvenient. Paul said, I made myself a slave to all men that I might save some. And so yeah, great glory, they all come forward there, but all of us can pray. That's part of fruit, pray for lost people. Listen, I grieve, I pray, I beg the Lord. I've got probably, and this is not a testimony or something. I beg the Lord for many, many people by name. And it grieves me at times how few of them I've seen come to Christ, the ones I'm asking for, right? But yet the psalmist said, He that goes forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so think about how we all are working together. This is not a social club. We give, we pray, we serve, we set up chairs. We we go to the ends of the earth. Why? Because we want to see converts. And then we don't just throw the fish in the boat. Then you got to clean them. And we make disciples. And we spend time. And I thank God for so many of you that are bearing lush fruit. That fruit that is changing you and your family. Little things that are different in how you're treating your your family, character changes, converts, conduct. What a wonderful blessing it is to bear this lush fruit. It's all for God's glory. Last thing I want to say about fruit is it's, it happens where you least expect it, and it often happens with those who least deserve it. Isn't that amen? Amen. It happens where you least expect, not Uncle Larry. That guy's a hardcore pagan. But it often touches those who you least expect it. And for those of us who are saved, we get it. We least deserve it. And even this morning, I wonder if the Lord's not powerfully speaking to someone's heart who's going, you know what? I've been playing around. Now I get it. How do I get on that road? How do I follow Jesus? I believe. And for some of you, you might say, I, man, I, be, I better wake up and smell the gospel coffee, because I, I, I don't know if I'm really even in the game yet. But I could tell you this, come by hook or by crook, if you truly believed at some point in your past, God's not through with you. He may be dealing with you right now. He may be doing some root scrambling, but that root will never die, because Christ is holding on to you. But wake up and and start to let him live through you. Get in the pools of baptism and start to spring up and bear fruit. Make your confession. Turn from whatever weeds are dragging you down, whether it's blatant sin or foolish pleasure. Let's have a church on fire for Christ. Come back this Friday night to our prayer meeting and pray with us that God will bring forth lasting fruit. What a glorious Savior we have. And the more we reveal, God reveals to us the person of Jesus, the more powerful the change can be in our life. So I hope that you'll be encouraged. I'm so encouraged by this passage, right? I can't wait to sow some more seeds. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that knuckleheads like us. To us it has been given to know the secrets. But I believe there are some here who may be on the outside still. But maybe you'll awaken them, just like these first-century followers. They had questions. They didn't just walk out the door. They wanted to know more. Father, if there's anybody here who wants to know more, may they come and see me or somebody today before they leave so that they can truly know Jesus, be forgiven, and experience this lasting change. Bear much fruit in this church, Lord. Thank you for the fruit you are bearing Jack it up, Lord, so that it's 30, 60, and 100-fold, not for us, but for your glory. Even this week, let your word save someone whom we least expect or who might feel they least deserve it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hope to see you at prayer meeting on Friday night at 7.